Thank you very much and welcome to our session. Um, we'll start with a little round of introductions. So my name is Vicky, I'm one of the co-founders of GIG, the Global Innovation Gathering, which is a network of social and digital innovators from all around the world. Hi, my name is Leah, I'm a senior, senior expert at um, GIZ, the German Development Agency, and I'm one of the initiators of our Open Voice Data Collection project. And I'm Kelly Davis, I'm the manager of the machine learning team at Mozilla. Yeah, and I'm um, Odas Nyonghuru. I'm uh, the managing director of uh, Digital Umuganda, which is uh, building common digital infrastructure for Rwanda. Thank you. So, um, just a quick heads up for the audience. Um, Leah and I will share the moderation of this panel, so we will switch at some point, you'll notice. Um, and I'll start facilitating. So... As you've all probably gathered from the program, um, our panel takes Digital Umuganda, Odasa's project, as a starting point to discuss digital commons and data as a commons. So basically, how to use data not just as a tool, but as an infrastructure um, for local value creation, inclusive technology, and uh, most of all, for reclaiming or claiming digital sovereignty. And... Um, we're at this nexus that is um, very apparent at the moment while we're creating the future of it, of AI, voice, and um, common like data as a common. So how do we continue on this track towards a future where human-machine interaction will probably be guided by voice and where artificial intelligence plays a major role in the development towards that? So right now, we're at the early stages of this development, and it's interesting to see what's happening there. So, um, as a, f sorry, as a first um, introduction to where we're coming from, I would like to ask Leah a few questions about the project. So, why are you working on, on voice interaction, and why open voice data collection? Yeah, let me start um, by saying that we are currently facing a linguistic divide. More than 50% of the content online is currently in English, um, which by far surpasses the number of native English speakers worldwide. And the same is actually true uh, for German as well. And this linguistic divide does not only apply to the internet, but also to technology as such, for example, to voice interaction technology, um, which basically means that um, the language you speak determines massively your online experience and your experience of digital technologies. Um, however, we, are, we believe that voice interaction is the future of human-machine interaction. Um, however, this is a future just available to a few of us, to those people who are actually speaking dominant languages covered with these kind of technologies, like English, German, French, Italian, um, and a few others, but not for people who are actually speaking underrepresented languages. And that's a shame, because there's quite a huge potential in, in voice interaction, we believe. Um, when I speak about potential, I mean, for example, the ability to give people access to services and information. So just imagine 
a young woman in rural Nigeria who has access to maternal health information just by speaking in her device or the potential of creating local value and stimulate innovation. So if you have open voice data, the topic that we are talking about today, available in, um, well, let's say Kinyarwanda, for example, then also local developers can develop applications such as the maternal health app I was just uh, talking about. And then, of course, when you're speaking about uh, voice recognition and underrepresented languages, you have also the point of preserving culture. So language does not only define the past, but also the future of all of us. So voice interaction technology is currently not available in, in many of these languages, and that's basically due to two points. Um, first of all, there's no economic reason for big tech to develop these applications. And second of all, there's not enough data. So if like, someone would like to develop this maternal health application, um, you wouldn't find any data for Kenya Rwanda, any voice data to train artificial intelligences with. So we actually decided to start doing this uh, because we believe in this potential and we would like to realize it for international development. Um, I'd like to ask Kelly to tell us a little bit more about Mozilla's Common Voice project, um, which is closely connected to the Digital Umuganda project, and we actually have slides for that. Yes, I will grab quickly. So, okay. Um, so Common Voice is basically a web app that allows anyone to create speech data sets in any language. Um, and these speech data sets can then subsequently be used to actually train a speech recognition engine, again, in any language, or train any other algorithm that seems inter interesting. So basically, so why Common Voice? Um, as we've mentioned, so speech recognition is really becoming more and more prevalent as a way to interact with computers. However, sort of being Mozilla and working in this area, we really, really want to ensure as many languages and as many cultures are really supported by speech recognition. So to sort of do this, I'll take a slightly more deep look in terms of what's required for speech recognition. So basically, speech recognition requires more or less three different, three different ingredients. So one of these is speech algorithms. So basically, algorithm or code that is able to take speech and translate the speech into text. So another ingredient which is required is compute. So the basic computational infrastructure to actually train these algorithms to recognize speech. And a third thing which is required is speech data. So basically thousands of hours of audio with people speaking along with the transcripts of these audios. Um, I'd say Common Voice is really tackling the speech data problem really right now. Um, there's another project called Deep Speech, which Mozilla is working on too, which tackles the other two problems. And it's unfortunately but true that this, the actually hardest problem here is a speech data problem. Um, for open data, really, there's, for all languages, English is included, um, there's not really enough speech data to create an open speech recognition model. Um, and it even gets worse. I think English is really sort of the best of the worst in a lot of ways. Once you go off English, so the, the amount of data is really sort of minuscule. Basically, there's thousands of languages which exist, which um, basically there's not enough speech data to create a speech recognition engine for. So, and Common Voice basically aims to solve this problem. So, Common Voice is actually relatively simple in a way. It works as follows. Basically, allows contributors to donate speech to a common data set in various different languages. I just have English really right here. It's sort of a, the presentation is in English. So, it works as this one's presented, or contributors presented with a basically a sentence to read. And the, an important point I should mention is this sentence is CC0. And 
this makes things a little bit more difficult in getting sentences for people to read, as one has to have CC0 sentences. And the reason it's hard to get is because, say, news articles and things like this aren't CC0. So we have to actually find, look for CC0 sentences or having attributors give us CC0 sentences. And it's hard sort of on creating the sentences, but it makes the data set much more useful because people are able to use the data set for essentially any purpose when it's actually done. So back to how this actually works. Users presented with a, a CC0 sentence, and then they're asked to read the sentence aloud after pushing the record button. And they record this sentence, and then re they read, say, five of these sentences, and then they're asked to contribute these sentences to the Common Voice data set by hitting Submit. So that's how data gets in. Um, another side of Common Voice is actually the listen side of things. It allows uh, contributors to listen to other people's readings and validate these readings. So it, works as follows. Basically, one's presented with a particular sentence that another contributor read, and then one could press play and hear the other contributor reading this particular sentence. And then you get to vote sort of up or down as if, is, is the sentence read correctly? And once one does this five times, one donates these five uh, validations to Common Voice uh, Dataset by hitting submit. So our goal really in this is to basically create as many open data sets for speech as is possible in as many languages as possible. Um, really, this allows speech recognition not to be sort of the sole uh, sort of proprietary reason of a few different languages, but also uh, allows us to sort of open speech in as many languages as possible and as many communities as possible. And so, kind of a little sort of Side. If you want to find out more about what we're doing, this is a deep speech project, which is the speech recognition engine side of things, and this Common Voice project, which is sort of the, the, the URL there for the Common Voice side of things. Thank you very much. We now need the stage manager to change the presentation, because Odas is also going to tell us a little bit. Um, and in the meantime, um, Maybe I can ask Lea, why did you choose Rwanda for the pilot of this project? Because as we've heard, it's a lot of languages, English also being problematic or challenging. And so, so why Rwanda? Yeah, Rwanda is one of the front runners for digital transformation in Africa. It has a really ambitious digital strategy that is focusing on uh, transforming into a knowledge-based economy by 2030. Um, additionally, we also have a project already on pl in place uh, in Rwanda that is supporting the Rwandan government in realizing and implementing their digital strategy, which means that we already have access to, um, to the government as well as to the digital ecosystem. And we basically started uh, well, doing user research in Rwanda because um, we've been using um, a, a human-centered design approach, let's say which basically focus on, well, first of all, understanding why would people donate voice data, so what motivates them. And then we actually set out together with Mozilla to host a hackathon uh, to develop incentive mechanisms to collect open voice data. And Odas and his team won this hackathon. Yeah, um, by show of hands, how many have pe people have been in Rwanda uh, in this room? <laughs> <laughs> Not so many people, uh, because I actually understand it's uh, 14 hours of flight from here. Um, but if you have been, I can tell you what happens every last Saturday of the month. Every morning, the last Saturday of the month, same thing happens uh, month after month, year after year. And what happens in Rwanda is Umuganda. And you might wonder, what is Umuganda? 
So basically, um, in ancient Rwanda, maybe 200 years ago, what used to happen was uh, self-help and cooperation. So say if you have a neighbor that's sick and it's planting season, then you can do the planting for him, but the community could gather and do the planting for him. And because you believe next year it might be you and you need the same help. And through that spirit, it's been updated uh, like 10 years ago, maybe 20 years ago. Now there were new, uh, new needs and there were new infrastructure needs. Because say you are a farmer and you need the crops to get to the market. So now you need to build the road. And now the community got together and built the road. And the next month, you, your wife is, almost, is pregnant and needs to give birth, so you need to build a hospital close to your neighborhood. And you'll need to build a school uh, so that your kids can go to school in your, in your neighborhood. So the, all, all this common infrastructure were built like this. And what used to happen, what is happening is every Saturday of the month, people get together in activities such as this. So you have everybody, 91% uh, of the population, and also if you're foreign, you're also invited to the, to the event. And in your community, you can build uh, either a school or roads or something else that's needed. So, and this is nationwide, everybody participates on a voluntary basis. And then at the end of the, at the end of the event, you can tackle, you can sit together and also tackle what needs to be done next month. And this is done mostly by the youth, maybe six, because 60% of the population is the youth. So you have tremendous youth participation, and that's also what we tapped in in the building uh, Common Voice. And this allowed Kigali to be the cleanest city in Africa and also one of the cleanest city in the world. If you've been to Kigali, you'll, you'll know. Uh, so what we thought after uh, at the hackathon was what voluntary basis participation would allow such digital infrastructure and critical digital infrastructure to be built. And what was happening is we already had a platform for infrastructure to be built. So we just marked that with the digital age. And we've been having events such as this where uh, this is the common voice in Kinyaranda section where people just get together and uh, every last Saturday of the month and do the voice recording or sentence collection for the common voice. And these events, mostly we do them at universities. So we can, ha we can have a gathering at university or a, a co-working space. Basically, we try to find communities that would be interested in artificial intelligence or in digitizing the language. Yeah, so basically that's the whole concept of uh, having a homegrown solution, a platform that's already existing of building infrastructure and merging it to the digital edge. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you. We are going to actually get to a Q&A. <laughs> um, what I'm also interested in is um, what did you learn so far? So I hear that you ran into challenges and you solved them. So what did you learn? Yeah, I think maybe the biggest challenge is finding sentences in public domain. 
you can find sentences in Kenya Rwanda, but sentences with no copyright that's uh, in public domain is very hard. So we would go to less uh, media company and they tell you, oh, no worries, we can give you the sentences. And then once you tell them, oh, you need to sign so that they can be the public domain, then they tell you, oh, we have to sleep on this and think about it. So actually our solution was what we do is at the events we also have sentence collection. And also the results was that the sentences are better quality because uh, you need to focus on what you're writing and also it helps, uh, and it's fun actually, if you think about it, it's fun just creating your own sentences and that's how we tackle the main challenge of sentence collection. That's so cool and it gives us an idea of um, the bigger picture we're facing here because um, it's not just startups, it's not just... Um, Initiatives like like uh, Common Voice by Mozilla, but um, it's it's a, it's a challenge that we all face, that civil society faces, developers, startups, and also corporates together. And speaking of the corporates, um, we talked about David and Goliath yesterday, and Kelly very eloquently said, "Well, don't forget that David actually wins in the end." But uh, the question remains: so, with big tech corporates leading the way here and actually making progress, and um, having other ways to collect voice data than relying on text that is available for free and as, as C0 licensed texts. Um, how does it work? What are, what are ways that you tackle these issues? I mean, it's, in terms of a David versus Goliath competition, I say it's, let's say, it's, it, it isn't, isn't a competition of that, of that sort in a lot of ways. Uh, I think What one has to remember in this regard is that um, these giant corporations, they really, they can't, don't have a magic wand that's creating data sort of out of thin air in a lot of ways. I mean, what they do is they have products that collect data and then data is coming from us, from, from the users, from the public in this room. And I think uh, one thing we have to remember is that we're the kind of, we're the Goliath in this, this regard, sort of, we have the power in a lot of ways. I think once we decide what we're going to do with our data, where we're going to put it, how we're going to use it, I think so the roles become switched and sort of David becomes Goliath and Goliath becomes David in a lot of ways, so. Is that something that you would agree on, Odas, from, from your experience, that we own our data and the community is the one that If they are sensitized, they're very willing to contribute to an open project, whereas they wouldn't be that easygoing with a commercial product? Yeah, I think that's, that's been our approach since the start, is we've been sensitizing that data is a common good. And a way we've been approaching to have uh, voluntary-based participation is we approach communities that actually... Uh, think in the future they'll need this data. So if let's go, we go to a university and the same, and they're developers or students studying languages or studying uh, technology, and they think, oh, later I'm going, to put, I'm going to be the one building solution on top of this infrastructure, then they'd be willing to contribute in building the infrastructure. And we believe data is a common good and should remain that way. I want to clap here. <laughs> Um, so, also uh, bringing that question back to Leah, um, so elephant in the room, why is GSZ not working with Facebook and Google on this? <laughs> uh, well, we are a federal, federal German company, um, which uh, means that we belong to the German state. And um, 
Well, our work is based on human rights and civil liberties. Um, in our work, we are basically aiming at making the world a better place. I know it sounds a bit cheesy, but that's actually uh, what we're doing. Um, which means for the digital age that we, for example, would like to ensure that the internet remains a global public resource and that uh, we help to democratize the potential but as well as the development uh, of technology, which means to make technology more inclusive and uh, focus on technologies that is actually geared towards people and societies. So in this sense, the Open Voice Data Project is also a means to counter this digital neo-colonialism and the exploitation of data subjects by uh, big tech companies. Um, we don't want this. We want to see power in the hands of people. And that's why Mozilla actually seems to be a much more natural partner for us. Sorry, we're sharing a mic. Um, I want to take this point up and come back to Odas on the ground. So um, which, which stakeholders are involved in your project? You mentioned the students and the university. Um, but w who are your most important players on the ground? Who are your partners? How does it work? Yeah, um, so we have different partners. Um, I would start at the basis. Uh, so these are students that are actually contributing and we consider them our biggest partners. But also uh, the universities and the co-working space we have, we have uh, working at. Uh, and then we also actually have Uh, government institutions and, and the government of Rwanda, like the regulation authority or the Academy of Language and Culture or uh, other institutions like the Ministry of Justice actually, that come to the event because they're actually interested and say we can build solutions on top of this infrastructure for the common good. And also not to mention, oh, we can mention Mozilla and the GIZ, I guess. Uh, also our biggest partners. Uh, and we believe that actually the community that's going to use this, uh, this data set should be the one building it. And uh, Mozilla and GIZ are helping also. And I think also the government is facilitating uh, to scale the project so that we can have a complete voice data set. Awesome. Kelly, Mozilla has a history of open source and community work. So what are um, learnings that you have from working with communities on technology? How do you support this community and also other communities worldwide in open voice data collection? Okay. See, I guess learnings in terms of open source, I guess I learned it's hard. I think that's kind of one of the things you learn once you start doing this. I mean, it's... So the naive picture of things is that you have some code, you put it on GitHub, you put the right license on it, and then you're kind of done in a lot of ways. I mean, that's really just the beginning. There's a lot of effort and a lot of sweat and tears go into actually supporting this. So there's issues you have to deal with, porting to different platforms you have to deal with, the bugs you have to deal with, promotion you have to deal with, sort of uh, dealing with sort of, let's say, press, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's so many things one has to deal with and creating and sort of promoting an open source project that sort of putting the code on GitHub is really just the very, very beginning of a lot of these things. And it's sort of from a naive point of view, you don't really see that. But once you're sort of in the trenches, it, you realize it's, it's a long slog in a way. So in terms of supporting different communities, I think communities is a, is a good word to use there. Um, I'd say what we found, especially for lower resource languages, say, for example, Welsh, is that... Um, These languages tend to form language communities in a lot of ways that have a sort of 
shared goal of basically sort of keeping their language alive in this digital slash English age. So there actually really is a community to talk to. Um, so what we've done for very, these various different communities is we've had different events. So if one, for example, we have an event when a language is sort of ready to start collecting data for Common Voice. So basically the website is, is translated and their sentences are collected for the particular language. We'll have, a, say, a kickoff event for that. Another thing we'll have is um, basically um, also, continuing events where basically sort of continue the collection in a particular language. Um, for example, I think we've had events for Guinea Rwanda, for Welsh, for Hakka Chin, and for all these different types of languages. Um, one thing we're also starting to do too in this regard is um, various different language communities are, are in the process or have also already applied to various different governments for funding to help continue this language um, collection effort. So we've done helped, I guess, uh, the Welsh community and also the Maori community basically uh, apply for government funding to actually continue their language collection sort of progress, so. We, we nerded out a little bit in the preparation of this session about language and communities and all of that because it is so fascinating. So there's so much to dive deeply into, um, but staying with the topic of commons. <laughs> Um, Leah made the case of why GIZ is working with Mozilla and um, Digital Umuganda. Um, and I know of a few projects where GIZ is also working on um, supporting digital commons. Um, so I'd be interested to hear a little bit more about that as well. Um, well, honestly, uh, we don't have so many experiences um, supporting open source uh, projects. Um, I think one concrete project is um, OpenHemis, which is an open health management information system that we are currently building together with a lot of partners. And I think that is a really important point when it comes to building, building commons. Um, you need partnerships. You need to build an ecosystem around um, your common good. And in this sense, um, that is what we are doing with the OpenHemis project that I just mentioned. And that's also what we are doing um, with well, Common Voice and Digital Yumuganda, so to help build a community around um, this, this shared cause, let's say. Um, the reason it seems so much to me is because we as GIG work with uh, GIZ in a lot of um, different projects around communities, around community hubs, so call it tech hub, call it um, co-working space, it's always a place where the community gathers that actually builds products. And um, it's, it's incredible to me to see that space grow so quickly because only five years ago it was very small and now already Odas is mentioning hubs and co-working spaces as stakeholders in his project. And um, that's, that's really brilliant for me to see. Um, and I don't know, I'm tempted to go to the point of how do we engage people in these projects more? How do we get um, everybody behind this um, project that is bigger than all of us and that is going to um, really define the future of, of everybody? And um, I'm, I'm just... I'm, Oh God, I'm trying to keep it short, but to <laughs> give us a chance to explore a little bit more. Um, what what other learnings you've had? What other experiences you've had? 
Yeah, um, I can maybe share a little bit what we learned in supporting tech hubs because that is important for well, building a digital ecosystem around like comments as well. Um, so there are two things I would say. And the first thing is funding. So funding obviously is really important, um, but you can also do a lot of harm with funding. So um, what we've learned is that um, it makes much more sense to actually support projects with core funding rather than with project-based funding. Because when you do project-based funding, you're basically keeping busy people with delivering value for you, but not developing their own project and the thing that they actually set out to do. So core funding, I think, is one of the things that we always uh, should keep in mind in, in this regard. And in terms of funding, it also makes a lot of sense to really invest into infrastructures and not into individual efforts of people. So, for example, when it comes to open voice data collection, it doesn't make, from our point of view at least, not so much sense to, well, fund people who are donating voice, but rather to build an infrastructure that helps as many people as possible to contribute um, their open voice data to the project. And the second learning that we've had as GIZ in this whole context, I think, is partnerships. Um, GIZ is quite a huge organization, so we are working in 130 countries worldwide. Um, we are usually working on a bilateral or multilateral level, which means that we have a lot of access to decision makers, actually. And um, we can help with our convening power to basically bring in new partners who can then share their resources in the project as well. And what we've also learned in Rwanda is that um, just by starting this conversation around um, well, AI and um, voice interaction, more and more people are actually coming to the events and say, well, we have an idea how, what to do actually with this. And um, to help set the agenda and to increase visibility for a certain topic, for like a comments topic, I think um, that is something where we as an organization can help very much. Thank you. Um, oh, sorry. Yes. <laughs> Actually, it's my turn now, so... <laughs> <laughs> um, Vicky, um, you've been working in this field as well, and you have a lot to say about this as well. So you've been basically active for, like, I don't know, more than 10 years, I think, as an activist and researcher in, like, bottom-up innovation processes. What is your favorite example for, like, an open source or for a commons project, and why? Thank you. Um, oh, my God. First of all, to, to guide us from this to the next... Um, for those that have been in the room, and I saw many people were sitting here from the previous sessions, so you've seen Tim from South Africa, you've seen Kutsai from Zimbabwe, and they're all part of this gig network. Like, we're, we're gig together. And um, I want to stress a point that Odas made and Kelly made and also Leah made, that it's the people on the ground and all of us together should do no harm. And the best way to do that is to work together but built on local experiences. Um, and now getting back to the question of an example, um, there's a hub that I know of in Brazil called Instituto Procomum, and they base their whole program, everything they do, around data commons. So they do startup support, they do incubation, they do acceleration, but always based on commons. Um, it's, it's tricky, and the space in Brazil is shrinking exponentially at the moment, so it's, it's getting harder. But um, 
it's it's a brilliant, beautiful project that you should check out. And in terms of how to use like best best my favorite examples of um, open software, open hardware, it's very hard. But um, I think the most important ones are the basics that everybody knows. So let's say Wikipedia, basic free software example that we all use. And um, another example that's equally basic is um, Raspberry Pi. So that's open hardware. And now the beauty comes in what Odas also says when people have ideas how to use that and combine it. And there's... Um, an offline server in a little box. It's tiny and it's very sturdy. It's called Hyrack Box. It's from Kenya. And you basically kind of download half the internet on it, or a lot, and you can take it elsewhere where there is no internet connectivity um, in the countryside. And then you have everything that you downloaded on your offline server available, and you can share that server with a lot of people around through one of the um, public Wi-Fi's that Tim talked about earlier. And like... I love when it all connects, when it all comes together, and those are my favorites, really. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> well, um, I think this would actually make a wonderful pitch to talk about offline um, voice-based interaction. <laughs> but let's not go down this road. Um, I'd rather like to ask you, Kelly, um, what do you think about other means to collect data and to make data more accessible? So, for instance, the German Labour Party put forward the idea of a data for all bill. And then again, there are other um, actors in the space, such as the Deutsche Telekom, who are now developing data marketplaces. Um, what do you think? Does it make sense? Does it, is it an opportunity to also like, democratize the basics for artificial intelligence? And where are its limits? I guess for what the SPD is doing now, I guess maybe commenting on politics is a little above my pay grade, but I'll try. Um, for what the SPD is doing, I think that the core idea is actually really interesting in a lot of ways. I mean, as far as I understand, it has sort of three principles. They want to, let's say, encourage people to make anonymized data sort of public for corporations and other organizations to do this. Um, and they also want to facilitate this. So the second point they want to do is facilitate this through sort of like a data commons in a way that uh, allows people to share this data sort of in a secure way. And the third thing that probably is the most bold thing I think they want, want to do is they want to introduce legislation which requires certain corporations once they have a certain market share to actually be forced to share parts of the data. So for example, in this context, it would mean say Google would have to be required to share some voice data that they have and train their systems on. I think the idea is bold. I, I think I sort of applaud it in a lot of ways. Um, in terms of sort of slight issues that may have to think about, sort of details that we may have to think about in this regard is sort of, in particular, anonymization. Um, like, anonymization is, is really hard to do right. It's a really hard thing to do right, and I think that's sort of underestimated in a lot of ways. So, let's say as a concrete example, um, one may have, say, a video, and a video of people walking around in the street or something like this, and one may think, okay, I can make this public, I'll, I'll pixelate the faces, and I'll cut the audio out of the video, and that's good enough in some sense of the word. Um, however, there's sort of technologies, I think MIT developed this technology that allows one to look at videos and look at vibrations of things like mirrors and windows in the videos and reconstruct the audio from the video as a result of that. So there's various different things which make anonymization hard. And also maybe you can take two different data sets that are independently anonymized and 
sort of through correlations in the data set, you can de-anonymize people in the two different data sets. So it's, it's a hard thing to do. It's sort of a lot of thought has to be put in, into actually doing this, but in terms of the actual core idea, I think it's a really great idea in a lot of ways. Um, but it's going to be hard to actually go from sort of the current sort of idea, the bill, into actually making it into a law. I think that's sort of a, a hard slog in a lot of ways. Um, I guess in terms of Deutsche Telekom, um, the data comments. Also, I think I think the core idea is actually a, a good idea. Uh, one thing I worry about, and one thing I also worry about with Common Voice in this regard, is that um, I think you what you don't want to do is have let's say one particular corporation kind of controlling this data commons in a way. One thing we're planning and trying to actually do with Common Voice is get a coalition of corporations, a coalition for different organizations to actually sort of, let's say, guide Common Voice. And that's how we'll know we kind of succeeded in a lot of ways with Common Voice is when it can kind of like leave the house and get its own apartment with this coalition of, of partners. So. Okay, thanks. So actually we are back to the ecosystems. I would say. <laughs> so we've been talking about um, means to democratize data, but data is only one ingredient when it comes to artificial intelligence. Um, another ingredient is talent. So Vicky, from your experience also working with tech innovation hubs, um, how do we actually well enable more people to participate not only in using voice interaction but also in building it? Um, I think we need strong communities, sensitized communities. Um, getting back to what Odas said, if you include people from the start and you get them as excited as you are about what's, what's happening, what's possible, then people will join and kids will want to learn. Like um, I know from my nephew that he doesn't like to learn as long as it's called learning. If it's called, hey, it's fun and you get to be able to do something really cool, then it's not considered learning. And I think that's um, equally true for me and for many of us. And luckily, I don't have to uh, write exams anymore. But um, if, if, you, if, if we all want to um, build these things together and understand the, the dimensions, and I mean, it's, it's mind-boggling if you think about it, like this coalition of corporations together with politicians just in one country that's a, that's such a project to do then if you think on a european level and let me just not get into article 11/13 and then you think global and then you think back from this global um, perspective into all the different uh, local communities it is it is such a massive task that we really have to get together and so for the small part of how to educate people to actually be able to develop these technologies to the discussions about governance that we have to have here um, I think it all comes down again to this local communities strongly empowered and I, I totally applaud this approach of, of core funding um, so, so you have local empowered communities that, that talk um, openly and, and um, on eye level as, as much as all of this is, is like old language and um, as cheesy as we want to make the world a better place, but we do. And so um, this, is, this is actually what's needed from my perspective, that we listen and we talk and we learn and we do it in a in an optimistic and positive way because there's enough reason to think we're all doomed. So whatever we do, it's, it's going to make it better, I think. 
Okay, so that's actually a great statement. Um, so, well, in Rwanda we are already implementing something. Um, we've touched on a couple of um, ideas for making more data available and for like how to actually bring more talent into the whole ecosystem. Um, what is your plan or does to scale up the project? Um, I think our plan will is targeting more the communities around the data. Uh, because we believe uh, that data is not uh, public, is not a private uh, consumption good. So we believe that data is not the new oil and that it's not for private consumption, that it's more of a common infrastructure. And if we have communities understand this, that the data is theirs and theirs for exploitation, not for private exploitation, then they consider uh, donating the, the voice data to the common voice and we build voice data sets and we build common infrastructure. And in the end, they'll be uh, the ones doing the solutions on top of that infrastructure. And this will allow innovation happening everywhere. Yeah. Okay, great. So we are all in for ecosystems here, uh, as you can see. But we would also like to know uh, what's on your mind, actually. So we have now a couple of minutes, I think 10, 15 minutes, for your questions. Please raise your hand if you have any. Oh, yeah. There are some people in the room, I think, with microphones. <laughs> Hello. Uh, thank you. <clears throat> My name is Peter Eber here. I am uh, writing digital human rights blog for uh, Giordano Bruno Stiftung. And uh, I was coming here with the expectation yeah, to meet a uh, mindset uh, that is somewhat um, has the doctrine of uh, data being a public good, uh, which means like all data or what. So um, that was a a really crucial um, speech during last CCC conference, uh, pointing out that um, health data. There are there are lots of uh, yeah, applications that try to collect health data and make something useful of it, uh, and it's a terrible failure because there is just no way to keep them private. So um, I would really like to know if, if you think this idea of public data ends somewhere or should be limited or, I mean, is it technically even possible to, for example, if someone, if China, for example, was collecting voice data from everyone, like they could have a, a voice fingerprint from everyone and I just wouldn't, wouldn't trust them whatever they do with it. So uh, what, what is your mindset about this? I take it. I guess I take it. <laughs> um, I, I agree with you. I think anonymization is a very hard, hard problem to, to crack. And I think it's also, as I mentioned, I think anonymization and sort of keeping the data, let's say, people's health data sort of private is a really hard thing to do because a lot of what one thinks of as private now, say, for example, may release several different data sets and <clears throat> correlations, as I mentioned, between these data sets may now not give you any kind of private information about people, but maybe there's some algorithm which is invented in six months or a year or something like this where one can look at these various different data sets and say, oh, well, this person has cancer and they had it on this and this day, they had diagnosed. I mean, these kind of things are... 
It's a very hard problem. It's really, I mean, I, don't, I wish I had an answer. I, I really wish I do, but I, I don't. I, just, I think I sort of acknowledging the difficulty of the problem is, I think, is a really good step, and acknowledging that's a very delicate problem that one has to deal with when opening data sets is also, I think, a really good step. But at the same time, I think it's hard to maybe even impossible to find a solution sort of now for all the different cases. I think one has to, sort of, let's say, proceed very carefully with these data sets that one opens. Yeah. Hi. Hi, I'm Dave. Um, I've got the over here. I've got a short question about um, about the Common uh, Voice project. Uh, is it allowed or desired to con contribute or that people contribute? Um, um, yeah. Uh, speech with background noise like train stations, conferences, uh, bathroom, or kitchen, or some something like that. Okay, yeah, I can I can take that question too. Um, <laughs> yes, it actually is a good thing. Strangely enough, it's it's naively one may think like, oh, for training for speech data, you want sort of clean speech. You don't want any noise in the background. So the speech recognition engine is trained and realizes like, okay, this is speech. This is how speech sounds in sort of isolation. But actually, actually not the case. Because um, most speech recognition engines sort of use the in the wild in some sense of the word um, are used in situations like that where it's a, it's a train station, you're in a car, or what have you. So the speech recognition engine needs to be trained on data that it sees in the wild to actually learn how to deal with these sort of random background noises that may occur. So for example, like a car honking or a train going by or, or an S-Bahn going by, what have you. So actually having some background noise actually isn't a bad thing. It's actually a good thing because then that data can be used to sort of create robust speech recognition engines. Hello. Hi. I have a question. Are, did you finish? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm finished. Sorry. I'm, I'm over here. My name is Solana. <laughs> I work on the Internet Health Report of, of Mozilla also. I know that um, you've been looking to media organizations in many different languages as a potential source for CC0 text or, or audio that's already transcribed. I wonder if you've had any interest from media organizations in terms of using the technology once it would be finished. I, I feel like, I mean, I, I love the efforts to crowdsource voice, but they're quite small scale still in, in all the different languages. And I wonder if what would be needed for like a really, really big drive on a nationwide scale or on a regional scale for, um, you know, local um, dialects and that kind of thing would be a, a project that said, once we have these voices, we will do this. Um, if, if there's been any kind of imagination, specifically from public media, but maybe also government, about what would be done with these voices that could help fuel the creation of a bigger commons. A lot of questions, but I'll try to at least answer maybe some of them. Um, for example, we've talked to the BBC. Um, BBC initially was actually interested in, in contributing lots of voice data, but then, let's say, our legal team and the BBC legal team got involved and realized that there's, that was never going to work. However, at the same time, they're still interested in actually sort of reaping the benefits of a speech recognition engine in a lot of ways. Um, also, I guess sort of, let's say, related to that, in terms of, in terms of Welsh, um, the BBC actually contributed 
data to the Wales National Library. Like lots of BBC uh, programs are in Welsh and actually subtitled in Welsh. And it happens to be the way they actually contributed this. The Wales National Library can actually use this data to train on, which is sort of a loophole in the normal way of doing things. So what they're planning on doing in terms of applications, one of the things uh, the Wales National Library wants to do with this data once it's used to train a speech recognition engine is essentially to um, basically provide text uh, for a lot of different audio sources and video sources that the, the library holds and then allow people to actually do searches over these texts. So then you can do searches over video and audio and things like this in Welsh. So that's sort of an example where a use case, let's say, uh, where media can be used, or most media can be used from the BBC to actually sort of provide a service based around this media. But the BBC would have liked to be able to do this directly, but I think you have to, we have to find kind of like a roundabout way of actually doing this. Yeah, and to also pick up from that, uh, in uh, Rwanda, we're, a lot of text we're getting is from media companies, and because it's very complicated technically, to get the speech and voice both entered, we just uh, use the written transcripts of the articles and sections of them that are licensed uh, under the CC0, and that allows us to have a lot of uh, text that's uh, in public domain that we wouldn't have otherwise. Hi, thanks for the talk. Um, I was wondering, how do you deal with volunteering in the frame of uh, projects where there's a lot of people that is being paid for the work? And how do you create this value of we are not just taking free jobs because we need them, uh, we don't have funding, or we decided to put the, the funding we have in other tasks? And how, how do you manage like dividing the activities or the parts of the projects that are going to be funded and the parts that are going to be volunteering based? And how do you create from a maybe like a design participatory perspective like this feeling of belonging and being really like uh, not replaceable in the sense of, of being a volunteering like somebody that it's needed and not just somebody that cannot be affordable because it's an easy thing to do? Yeah, um, so we are actually lucky because there was already a platform of voluntary participation in building infrastructure, but this regarded more in uh, normal physical infrastructure, such as roads, and what we did was adapt it to uh, the digital age. But also regarding that, uh, what we also try to do is find the communities that would be interested in uh, building solutions on top of that infrastructure, which means we looked at... Uh, uh, maybe co-working spaces that may have uh, uh, software developers or other people that are actually going to be the ones developing solutions and they're the one, mo mostly the ones who contribute and help us sensitize other people to contribute their voice. Another source would be uh, universities because students are really engaged in a lot of work and are really uh, willing to do on a participatory level uh, for the experience and that's also one of the main source of volunteers. And I think the, the other thing to also consider is that uh, we also needed to get messages, key messages, that uh, helped somebody feel like they uh, owned the project. So we uh, targeted messages, say, digitizing Kenya Rwanda, and somebody could feel that, a sense of pride uh, or in the national language, and they could just contribute. Yeah. Maybe I can elaborate a little bit more on the funding question. Um, 
so far we didn't invest much in this project because what we didn't say is that this is basically a project that was funded by a GIZ internal innovation fund, which means uh, that it's basically not um, money coming from the BMZ like an, as an official commission, but we tried to identify new ways and new well, approaches to um, well, work with data, let's say. That was the overall aim of the, of the whole thing. So what we've been doing with the little money we had for this like innovation fund project was basically to invest it into structures. And I think the most expensive thing that we've actually invested in was the hackathon. So the first event to actually well raise the topic of artificial intelligence and voice interaction in um, Kigali and to bring different people together. So um, in terms of funding, as I said earlier, I think it's very much important to actually fund structures and not individual people. And what we are also trying to do is to, um, well, engage the community a lot in these, um, in these structure building activities, let's say. So for example, when we are doing an event, um, usually Odas and his team are like doing the event. So we are there to um, consult on certain things. Um, we help to bring in maybe new partners, but um, the vast amount of work is done by the community on the ground. And I think that makes very much sense because then um, you also have the right setup for sustainability because um, at a certain point, yeah, that is um, like moving on to, uh, to other projects, let's say, and we would like to build a structure and a community that is vivid and strong. So we need actually these voluntary um, contributions in order to ensure that um, the project is going on even after we are not funding anymore. And um, so in this sense, that we are investing in structures and also in bringing on new people and new partnerships. Because what we've actually found in Rwanda is that a lot of um, governmental agencies are interested in this topic. And that is already a great success because then we can ensure that in a Rwandan context, that project is going to live on. With the support maybe from a governmental agency, that is the Information Society Agency in Rwanda, or the Academy of Language and Culture that Odas mentioned. And there's no like tax money from Germany needed anymore. And I think that is like in terms of funding an approach that helps us to really build for sustainability. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, my name is Gilbert Munyemana. I'm from Rwanda and uh, I work for Plan International Rwanda, but part of my, my civic engagement, as Odas was saying, maybe in Uganda, I do technical advisory and educational technology. And I wanted to come back to two points that have been said on scale up. One of the big things that uh, can make the project go up is the service which come after the data set. Like for example, I'll, I'll give an example like to make educational content. It's easier to make it in English because like you can rely on text to speech because on English or French. But in Kenya Rwanda, the recordings to make so expensive and it will be difficult to reach more than 80% of the population which does not speak any other uh, international language. So I would say that the scale up, it's uh, obvious as far as there is a complete data set and the use of uh, 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 the use of uh, those uh, uh, those uh, uh, the infrastructure, and on the volunteerism part, there is uh, like a great need 
of different people who can do it to donate. Because like as being the society, most of the intellectuals like uh, in Rwanda or elsewhere, they have started even the scholarships of the government and they feel like there is a, too much of giving back. So these platforms are one way of making use of those intellectuals. As Odas uh, was saying, in Umuganda, there is more on physical contribution. And uh, on intellectual part, so there's a lot of people who will be willing to do that. So I just wanted to, to, to share that uh, experience. And uh, as far as we have the platform and the right services, the scale up even to neighboring countries is something which uh, uh, will come like afterwards, like kind of automatically. Thank you very much. I really look forward to uh, the same platform for Lugbara and Luganda and Uganda as well. So exciting times ahead. And I like the remark on um, if, if volunteering is something that belongs to everybody in the community because there is a sense that it's not you're not giving something to somebody else, but you're giving it to yourself as well because you're giving it to everybody, um, that, that might be the spirit. Um, in closing, and thank you all very much for, for your questions, I would like to ask one final question to the, to the plenary. And let's start with Leah and go through. Um, so what would you recommend to someone who would like to start an open voice data collection for their own language? Yeah, I would uh, start with user research. Um, so to find out why people would actually um, contribute to an open voice data collection. Um, that's basically uh, what we did in Rwanda, and um, in doing so, we were able to identify our target groups as well as potential user groups for this kind of data. And um, with the hackathon, we then, as, well, were able to develop actually like an incentive structure that um, well, motivates people to take part. So I think it's really important to understand why people do this and to then tap into this motivational pattern and to bring people on the project. I just do it. I think that's probably my simple answer. I mean, I agree. You have to identify the community in a lot of ways. And that's key, especially for languages that are, say, less well data resourced. But I think just, just do it. I think one of the things we actually, when we're creating Common Voice, one of the things we actually tried to do is make it sort of a tool chest as opposed to sort of Mozilla controlling from on high. So if you want to actually create localize the site to a particular language, whatever the language may be, you can do it on your own. We provide a website that actually can localize the site. Once it's localized, you can actually start collecting sentences. And once you collect these sentences, you can, it'll make your, we'll, like, we'll be hosting it, but basically your site will be live and you can start collecting data in whatever language you actually want to target. So we aren't like a gate men. We're basically allowing you to do whatever. We're creating tools for you as opposed to limiting you in any way. Yeah, um, I think if you want to do the same approach somewhere else, yeah, I think the, the first thing is to understand the local context. Because if you understand the local context, then you understand what incentivizes people to, to do this on a participatory level, on a voluntary basis. And after understanding the context, then build a community around the context. Because once you know uh, why somebody would be willing to contribute their voice to Kenya Rwanda, which in Rwanda is because they feel a sense of national pride or they're enthusiastic about building solutions on top of that infrastructure. So once you understand and uh, 
uh, and you can identify a particular community that would be interested, then it would be very easy to build that uh, common infrastructure. Yeah. Fantastic last words, and the sign with the zero minutes goes up. So I thank the panelists, and I thank the audience. Um, enjoy Republica. We will not be able to do that. We may not be able to do that. We may not be able to do that.